0: It was a Fiat. And they got under it they got ready. And they lifted the thing up and put it on the sidewalk. <laughs> so the bus driver, he, he took the bus around and down into the drive. And then he stopped and he said, when you put the car back, put it back so the guy's going to know that it was moved. <laughs> so we did
1: Welcome to Musicians Versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, pianist Christine Smith. One of the things that I love about this podcast is the chance that I get to talk with musicians from around the world about their lives, and to explore and learn about the diverse and meaningful careers that they have made for themselves in the world of music. Since starting this podcast two years ago, I have been educated and inspired learning about the highs and lows of the different types of careers available to musicians. Today, as students across the U.S. prepare to go back to school, I want to take a couple of episodes to dive into the career of a school educator. These unsung heroes often give students their first taste of music making or ensemble work and help to create memorable experiences that can shape the trajectory of a child's life. In the next two episodes, we'll take a look into the life of a high school choral director whose career took him up and down the eastern seaboard and included tours across the ocean and around Europe. We'll talk about working with school administrators, involving parents, balancing high expectations with positive relationships, and how a choral tour helped heal emotional wounds from war. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to my guest, William C. Davis, or as I like to call him, Uncle Bill. A native of Naugatuck, Connecticut, Mr. Davis was choral director and music coordinator at Naugatuck High School from 1973 to 2001. He had an outstanding choral program of five choral ensembles, including 250 to 300 students. He was also a varsity tennis and varsity soccer coach for 22 years. Mr. Davis has earned degrees from Ohio Wesleyan University, New York University, and the University of Bridgeport, with additional study at the Hart School of Music and the University of Connecticut. Mr. Davis has served as a frequent adjudicator and has been a guest conductor at festivals in Portland, Durham, and Ellington, Connecticut, and at the CMEA Southern Region Music Festival. Mr. Davis has been a guest choral conductor at Laurel Music Camp for nine different seasons, He conducted the Heritage Singers in Southbury, Connecticut for 14 years. Under the direction of Mr. Davis, the Nagatuck High School Chamber Singers performed extensively throughout New England, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, and Quebec and Nova Scotia, Canada. In addition, six European concert tours were made to Germany, Austria, France, Italy, Ireland, and England. Since retiring in 2001, Mr. Davis directed the Naugatuck Community Chorus, is the director of the 75-voice male chorus The Barnstormers since 2005, and directed the Keen Chorale for over six years. So, William C. Davis, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Musicians vs. the World.
0: Well, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Well, just reading your bio and listening to all of the things that you've done, it seems like you've really made a huge impact on hundreds and hundreds of students. Is that what you always wanted to do? Did you always want to be a teacher and a choral director?
0: Yes. It took a while to get there, only because my father was a choral director and a very successful one, and he was at Naugatuck High School also. And I didn't want to do what many people thought would be the obvious thing Follow your dad's footsteps. And so I kind of resisted that. I had done ROTC as an undergrad. And uh, right after I got my master's, this was during the Vietnam conflict, and I got called up and they said, where would you like to serve? So, well, I would, I'll go to the Southwest if it has to be in the States. And I ended up in California and I was there four years because I really actually liked the military life very much, and was very successful in there. But uh, the practical side of me said, eh, don't you need to at least use some of this training to see if that's what you want to do? <laughs> and of course, you know the answer to that. And so my first job was in Enfield, Connecticut, teaching a junior high school, which I did for two years. Gee, 1973, holy smokes. I got this job, taught in Enfield for two years, and then my dad told me, he says, I'm going to retire. And, of course, the bells went off in my head. I said, oh, here it is. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, thankfully, I was smart enough to take the opportunity when it presented itself. And I started in 73. Dad left in June, and I walked in the door in late August.
1: So it's just a legacy of Davis's.
0: Well, you know, it, 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 looking back now, it's, it's something I'm very proud of. Uh, Dad did a wonderful job there, and uh, he was there 28 years. And as it turned out, when I retired, that was the 28 years for me in Nagata. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was
1: pretty cool. Yeah. Now, when we were up visiting you, you showed me the pictures and the posters that each of your students brought. So when you retired, you had 28 posters and you had students from each of those 28 years come and honor you. So you must have made such a huge impression. Why do you think that is that students become so connected with their music teachers?
0: I think it's more, not just a music teacher, but any teacher. In my case, in the music teacher's case, generally speaking, if you get them as a freshman and you're doing your job and enjoying it in the process, you're going to keep those kids for four years and they'll see you every day. And you can't, especially some you get pretty uh, close to. I, I, I always call them my kids. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, they are my kids. I feel strongly about that. If you treat those students that way and think of them not as this student that walks in the door and then he's gone, but in my case, my kids, you can't help but uh, establish in some cases a very strong bond
1: there hmm And then on top of that, you have the music. What sort of things did you teach your students? You did, You had choral, but then you also taught some other subjects as well, right?
0: I also taught uh, three other courses, which I felt strongly about needed to be in the curriculum. And one was a music history course. And I like history anyway. And so music history, thanks to a professor at NYU, I just really liked it. And I mm-hmm you were start reading about Johann Sebastian Bach, what went on in his life besides his music? Well, all his kids, couple of wives, getting along with people that didn't really want to get along with him, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I did music history. I taught music theory, and music theory is something I just loved. When I took it as an undergrad, I remember so many of my fellow students, music theory to them was a drag. Right. They, they just, oh, geez, I don't want to, let me get through this and get on with my musical life. And of course, you would have all your homework and things to write out and work with. And sometimes I would get some really banal things to harmonize or whatever. to And I early on said, I can do this pretty quickly. So how can I make this musically the best thing it can possibly be, given what this thing they gave me to harmonize? and loved doing that. It was this this, uh, wonderful challenge that I had. And I wanted that my students who were interested in the music theory part of our musical world, have them to feel the same way. Mm -hmm. And then the third course I taught was a voice class. Again, just makes sense. Mm
1: -hmm. How do you do that? How do you make something like music theory or music history I mean, you have a passion for it, obviously, but how do you get that passion to go into your students so that they also are interested in it?
0: Well, the music theory, kids who were there wanted to be there Mm -hmm. in the first place. And two, several of them, I can think back, on some in particular, were very gifted, talented. uh, And we knew right away by the time they came to me for music theory, their goal was to Go into music as a profession, and so my job was to teach him how this stuff on the printed page works. You got to know your your scales. You got to know all your key signatures. You got and you got to know it immediately. You can't stop and uh, let me see. No, 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 no. You can't do that. And so you could, when you're working on a piece, if it's an A flat major, you can start thinking an A flat major, what that means, um, as you're writing or. Back in my day, it was still pencil and paper, not like computers now. But uh, but I, I I guess I'm a pretty enthusiastic guy in a classroom, and I would walk around and we'd be doing something, and I stop and I would turn and say, "Joey, name name all the sharps in C sharp minor." And uh, <laughs> but I but I did it till and then of course if they panicked, we would all laugh, and including me, because I'd been there once too. And so you kind of get that rapport with them, and, and you care about them, and you want them to be as, as good a version of them as they can possibly be. That's the whole goal of this teaching thing anyway. Yeah. I just happened to use music to get there.
1: Yeah, and it worked really, really well. Now tell me about some of these concert tours that you went on. You went all around New England, and you went to Europe a few times. Now that means you probably had very, very supportive administration in order to do these sort of things. I did. But how did those tours come about? Well,
0: when I first got to Naugatuck High School, I said, you know, we got to be able to do something besides just prepare for a concert at the auditorium.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I had colleagues, friends of mine scattered around New England and other places. And we would talk once in a while and eventually came to, hey, you've got a good choral program and so do I. Why don't we get together on a weekend and do an exchange? I'll come to your place and then you'll come to mine. And we'll combine in the concerts, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how we started doing exchanges. And I I did that, oh, gee, all over New England. I did one with a, a friend of mine down in Virginia, Fairfax, Virginia. I did another one. It was in Maryland. But, and that's how we started to get into that. And I always told my students, I said, if you, you know, I would get on them once in a while about being, casual about this or that and especially about their of all things their behavior. And I said, what our goal is is to do what we do the best we possibly can and that our conduct has to be above reproach. Says my goal is we will go travel somewhere and we come back. And the administration has doesn't hear anything about anything other than good info. And it said if we if they can't come up with a reason to say no because we've done everything we're supposed to do, and then some, then they're going to say yes, and they will trust us, and if we keep proving that we are up to the task, they will continue to say yes, and that worked out. One of my biggest allies was the superintendent of schools in Naugatuck, and he would he was a big fan he would he he came to every concert he'd say, "Bell, I want to sit in this seat right over here and make sure you save it for me." And he would bring, he and his wife would come and that was his seat. And even the students started talking about this, Mr. Dowling seat, you know, that kind of thing. In 1982, I decided, you know, all this good stuff was going on in the elementary and middle schools. And yet other than the parents in that school, nobody knows about what the other school is doing. And mm-hmm. so I organized and formed a, a, a borough music festival that involved students in the music programs from grade four up to a senior in high school. Oh, wow. And I presented it to Mr. Dowling, and I made my pitch and explained the, the value and why. And he sat there for me and he says, I like that idea. Says, let's do it. Says, I'll bring it up. I'll bring it up with my principals meeting. He met with the principals every week. And I heard later on, he he brought it up there and several principals didn't like it because it take took too much time out of the curriculum day. Mm. To when you start bringing the kids together, and you got to pay for the buses to get them there, over to the high school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. One of my friends who was a principal in another school said he listened, and then he said, "Gentlemen, uh, we're going to do this music festival here and here in town, okay? And we are going to support it." Says now the next item I have, and that was it. Oh. And, and when you have a superintendent who is as supportive as that and principals who eventually got on board if they weren't sure at first, you know, it's just don't shoot yourself in the foot and do a good job with what you do. And you get that across to the kids as well, because they ultimately they want to do a good job too. Mm -hmm. They don't want to just screw around. Right. Well, some do, but we convinced them otherwise.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what were some of the benefits of getting all the schools together? In doing these big festivals?
0: Well, selfishly, it gave me a wonderful feeder program because in the concert, my chamber singers would sing in the concert, the Borough Music Festival. And they would get to hear, oh, I can do that. So it came time for them to matriculate to uh, Naugatuck High School as a freshman. I had many of them. And I would go down and do auditions at both middle schools. And I, I took took time to go down there and arrange it with the school principal there and the music teachers. It worked very well, but I had an audition sequence that I did with each kid. And boy, you found some wonderful kids very quickly. But the the other part of it was kids in Salem Elementary School could hear what the kids in Hotbrook are doing, could hear what the kids in Central Avenue are doing, could hear what the kids in Cross Street are doing, and so on. Okay. and it just made it a lot of fun and of course to these young kids this thing was a big deal to get on a bus go over to the high school auditorium
1: it was a lot yeah. of fun
0: and it's still going oh is it i'm happy to say i write i retired in 2001 and a couple of years ago it was still going and they asked me back to be a guest conductor oh uh, for the festival so that was pretty cool
1: oh i bet that was so special
0: it was it was oh and in and the auditorium is the Davis Auditorium.
1: Where is it? Is it named is after you or your dad?
0: Both. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the Davis times two auditorium, <laughs> which is pretty nice.
1: Those festivals sound like such a valuable experience to your students, but you also went on a lot of tours and some of them internationally. What are some of the places that you went?
0: We pretty much covered Western Europe, to be honest. We performed and traveled in England. We were in London and in Cambridge. We were in um, Ireland, Dublin. In the center of Dublin, you could turn in every direction and see a Guinness sign. That was pointed out to me. Uh, anyway, we were in France, sang in Paris, sang in Caen, sang at the uh, Normandy D-Day beachhead. We were in Italy, in Rome, and in Florence. Oh, Austria, Germany. We got around,
1: <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Which
0: was which was great. Six different. It was six different concert tours we did. That was with my chamber singers. Wow,
1: I'm sure you have lots of fun stories from that.
0: Well, we do, we do. I'll, I'll do two quick ones. Uh, we were in Vienna. End of the day, we got to our hotel, and you're in these long, you know, coach buses, and they they park the buses underneath in a garage underneath the hotel, and the guy would come around a corner and go to to uh, drive in, and there's this guy that's parked his small car illegally right on the corner and he couldn't make the turn without basically smashing the car and so we're saying what are we going to do and there's nobody around to ask and the driver turns around and he said you know got you've got some big strong boys here he said i figure six to eight guys can move it i turned around and asked him Well you would have thought well, yeah well yeah i'll be right there d just a minute and i had about eight or nine guys jump out of their chairs we went out and we it was a Fiat. And they picked the thing up and they got under it and they got ready and they, got, and they lifted the thing up and put it on the sidewalk. <laughs> so the bus driver, he, he took the bus around and down into the drive. And then he stopped and he go, said, when you put the car back, put it back so the guy's going to know that it was moved. So we did. <laughs> so we did. we put the back end of it, turned around a completely different way and up on the sidewalk. So, <laughs> all I know, he got a ticket anyway. <laughs> that was so funny and then these guys they get back on the bus big strong guys you know and of course all the, the girls they uh, oh you're so wonderful yeah, it, was fun- <laughs> it was really funny but one other quick one D-Day was in 1944 and on the 50th anniversary year there was an organization in France that invited from each state a performing group to come and perform in a concert And our high school was asked that year to be the one from Connecticut. And it included not just my chamber singers, but part of the concert choir and the concert band Mm. with parents. It was 172 people, a logistical nightmare. Mm. And anyway, we said, yes, we would come, raise an enormous amount of money to do so. But we did. We went. We're outside of Paris and we're traveling in four buses. The fourth bus also has a trailer attached to it. And I think this was on the way in from the airport. And we got about 10 miles outside of, and the four buses had to get really spread apart from each other. And we come to the one of these roundabouts, these big round, huge roundabouts. And again, what are we going to do? And, they, and all the drivers are talking with these, keep going around the roundabout. <laughs> so we, we did. We went around. And we, as we came around the first time, we picked up the second bus. And then the two buses <laughs> go around oh it was two or three times we picked up the third bus and with so here's these three buses still going around the roundabout and finally the fourth bus with the trailer shows up we all go around once just to, for haha's sake and then we headed in it, was, it was, had to be the funniest thing it's one of those things you had to be there but we were so it was good yeah, it was good The very touching thing that happened because of being there uh, in Normandy, obviously we were there because of the D-Day remembrance, and one of the wonderful things that we were able to do is a colleague of mine, Frank Johnson, was a D-Day veteran, Hmm. and he landed on Omaha Beach when he was 19, Hmm. a year older than some of my, a lot of my seniors. And we invited him to go. And after quite a bit of reflection, he said, I I will go. Talking with his wife before he went, he says, you know, I'm amazed that he'll go. He said, you know, he's never talked about that part of World War II, his experiences. He's he's never said a word about it. And anyway, we got there and we went to where we were going to sing a short performance overlooking Norma Cemetery. It had like, I don't know, 9,000 graves there. And we got there, lined up, did our performance, and then we had about an hour to walk down and look over the beachhead, and we had to walk through and along the cemetery. And I happened to look down, and here's Frank Johnson walking. He had like eight or nine of my students with him, just kind of all gathered around him, almost like a mother hen. And I could see him talking and pointing to the kids. And it really was quite moving, quite touching. And the kids, I talked to them later, and they were very touched. And the other thing connected with Frank that evening, we did a concert in Kong, which was destroyed in the war, and there's a conservatory of music, and we did, we did a concert there, the band and the choirs. And at the end of it, they introduced Frank after the final applause, and they introduced. Frank, as being a veteran who, basically, as a kid, had at some point after he landed walked through their town, even though it was destroyed, he was in there. The audience stood up, gave him a standing ovation, and a very long one. It was it went on for oh I don't know several minutes, and then and then and then we were done, and so on. People walked around and chatted, and so on. And Frank was standing there, very moved, and then kind of drips and drabs, but about 30 very elderly people came up to him and gathered around him. And he wanted to shake his hand. He said, I was a kid when you came through here. And thank you. And there must have been, I don't know, 20 or 30 people. It was wonderful. And, you know, Frank got home, back to Naugatuck his wife told me that next weekend they had a family dinner and he talked about his experiences for the first time. He talked to his family and he said, that trip enabled him to come to grips with those memories. Wow. So it was wonderful. And again, that's, you seize these kind of opportunities to teach the kids something besides, you know, we teach them the music and, and they're going to do it really well. But there are other things to be taught too. And you get you get those chances. And they don't happen very often, but they do happen once in a while.
1: Wow. What a story. Yeah. So you've had this incredible life, an incredible career as an educator and as a as a teacher. And I know that so many musicians want to, you know, be the next, you know, rock star or the next Yo-Yo Ma or the next, you know, superstar. But would you suggest and would you recommend students now going into education?
0: Yes, I I would, but only for the right reasons. If they want to be mm. the next Billy Joel, yeah, go to, the, go to a conservatory, you know, get your training. But uh don't go into music education if you want to be the next Billy Joel, you know. And I like Billy Joel, <laughs> love his music. If you want to make a difference in a teenager's life that's lasting, in many cases is much needed, then yeah, you can make a good living as an educator. You won't make a lot of money, but you can have great experiences, you can touch kids' lives. You can make a difference. You really can. I am thinking here, sitting, I can think of several of my former students who went into music education and have all been very successful and are I'm very proud of them because they've, they followed the, the blueprint, I guess, a little bit of what I tried to teach them, and they just gone further with it and done wonderful things. And some of the things that they have had to do getting through the pandemic to have the kids still have that musical experience, to help the kids adjust, how to deal with COVID. It was very difficult time, and what they had to do to make that happen. I mean, uh, forget about getting paid by the hour. It was you, you make the decision. This is what needs to be done, and this is what I'm going to do, and you don't sit there and add up the hours and see if it's worth it or not. Mm-hmm. It's worth it and it needs to be done, then it's worth it. Therefore, it needs to be done. And that's what you do.
1: Join us next time when Bill goes into more detail about teaching teenagers.
0: I had a saying, and he was, I said, mediocrity does not belong in this room. I said, And I hope you understand that.
1: And shares more powerful moments from his choral tours.
0: And I could tell that not a whole lot of people come to the Russian Orthodox Church after the fall, after Glasnost. I said, and I came to and I said, can we sing a song for you?
1: Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians vs. the World podcast. If you have enjoyed today's episode and want to support the show, the best way to do that is to share it with your friends or leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. A very special thank you to William C. Davis for joining me and sharing his experiences and insights into the world of music education. In today's episode, you've heard excerpts of I Am the Rose of Sharon by William Billings, Ave Maria by Anton Bruckner, and So Ben Michia Bon Tempo, by Orazio Vecchi. These pieces were performed by the Nagatuck High School Chamber Singers, led by William C. Davis. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. If you have any questions for us or topics you'd like to hear about, or any helpful advice for other musicians you'd like to share, be sure to reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.